0: Let's open our Bibles this morning to Joshua chapter 10. We have for uh, I don't know how many weeks been working on those passages that nobody likes to preach on, the ones that are tough, and we've gone everywhere from uh, Eglon in his throne room uh, to Tamar and to uh, questions of... uh, uh, the prophet sending out the bears on the bad kids, and what do we do? Do we stone our children? And all kinds of things like that. Um, this is the, this is, there are plenty more of these. So another date, we'll come back and do another batch of them. Um, this one really was by request. Uh, when, when we were in this, somebody said, hey, Rand, why don't you deal with all those passages in the Old Testament where God's people are told to go in and just kill everybody. Because I always wondered why. And I want to know why. How do we justify this? So um, we're not going to do all the passages that that say that. We're just going to focus on Joshua 10 and 11 here as an example. There are plenty of others where it says very clearly and very plainly, Go in and kill everything. Devote everything to the Lord at this city. Man, woman, child, animal, everything. Now, th- those, it seems pretty hard when we look at it. And we're going to look at it in context and then figure out what this means for us today. And it's interesting as you, if, if you have ever been to Israel and go up the valley that Joshua went and look at the archaeological evidence of this time period when they come to a city, because in in Israel you build where water is, so basically there's a city on a city on a city on a city, and every time that city is overcome uh, and destroyed, then they build a new city there because that's where the water is. So if you look at archaeological evidence, what they do is they, they take a square and they dig it out and they dig down, and they can see the layers of civilization there. Usually they are identified by the types of pottery that was used. That's how you figure out what age it is. But in that valley, when you dig down, you find this layer of char, and it's very clear. I was down in one of those holes, and you look at that, and here's pottery and pottery, and then there's this layer of black, and then there's more. And that layer of black coincides with when Joshua came through that valley, time-wise, because in that particular area, he devoted everything to the Lord, and those cities were burned to the ground and destroyed and It's there in the archaeological evidence, this layer of char. So let's look at Joshua chapter 10 this morning. And uh, we're going to read quite a bit. I'm going to read 10 and then all the way into uh, verse 20 of 11. So I think we can tolerate that. So let's stand and I'll read the word of God this morning. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning and, and, and dig into your word, help us understand. Help us see your character and your purposes, but also, Lord, what does this mean for us today? How, then, are we to live because of the way that we have seen you act and the promises that you have made? Send your Holy Spirit, we pray, to fill our minds and our hearts and to open our eyes to give us understanding. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So, Joshua chapter 10, and I'll begin in verse 22, 22 of Joshua 10. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring these five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so and brought these five kings out to him from the cave. The king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmath, the king of Lach- Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And it came about when they brought these kings out to Joshua that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came near and put their feet on their necks. Joshua then said to them, Do not fear or be dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies with whom you fight. So afterward Joshua struck them and put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees, and they hung on the trees until evening. And it came about at sunset that Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves and put large stones over the mouth of the cave to this very day. Now Joshua captured Makeda on that day and struck it and its kings with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed it and every person who was in it. He left no survivor. Thus he did to the king of Makeda just as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Makeda to Libna and fought against Libna. And the Lord gave it also with its king into the hands of Israel, and he struck it and every person who was in it with the edge of the sword. He left no survivor in it. Thus he did to its king, just as he had done to the king of Jericho. And Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Libna to Lachish, and they camped by it and fought against it. And the Lord gave Lachish into the hands of Israel, and he captured it on the second day and struck it, and every person who was in it with the edge of the sword, according to all that he had done to Libna. Then Horm, king of Gezer, came up to help Lachish, and Joshua defeated him and his people until he, until he had left him no survivor. And Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Lakish to Eglon, and they camped by it and fought against it. And they captured it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword, and he utterly destroyed that day every person who was in it, according to all that he had done to Lachish. Then Joshua and all Israel went with him, then Joshua and all Israel with him went up from Eglon to Hebron, and they fought against it. And they captured it and struck it, and its king with all its cities and all the persons who were in it with the edge of the sword. He left no survivor according to all that he had done to Eglon, and he utterly destroyed it and every person who was in it. Then Joshua and all Israel with him returned to Deber, and they fought against it, and he captured it and its king and all its cities, and they struck them with the edge of the sword and utterly destroyed every person who was in it. He left no survivor, just as he had done to Hebron, so he did with Deber and its king, as he had also done to Lebna and its king. Thus Joshua struck all the land, the hill country, and the Negev, and the low land, and the slopes, and all their kings. He left no survivor, but he utterly destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. Now that's crucial there in what we're working with here. The Lord, God of Israel, commanded Joshua to do this. 41. 41. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea, even as far as Gaza, and all the country of Goshen, even as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings and their lands at one time, because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. So Joshua and all Israel with him returned to the camp at Gilgah. Then it came about, when Jabin king of Hazor heard of it, that he sent to Jobab. Jobab, the king of Maiden, and the king of Shimron, and to the king of Ekshef, and to the kings who were of the north in the hill country, and in the Arabah, the south of Chinnereth, and in the lowland, and on the heights of Dor in the west. You're very impressed with my Hebrew here, aren't you? <clears throat> Verse 3, to the Canaanite on the east and on the west and the Amorite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Jebusite in the hill country and the Hivite at the foot of Hermon and the land of Mizpah. And they came out and all their armies with them, as many people as the sand that is on the seashore and very many horses and chariots. So all of these kings, having agreed to meet, came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid because of them, for tomorrow at this time I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all the people of war with him came upon them suddenly by the waters of Merim and attacked them. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel so that they defeated them and pursued them as far as great Sidon and Misrephothmaim, and the valley of Mizpah to the east, and they struck them until no survivor was left to them. And Joshua did to them as the Lord had told him. He, <coughs> he hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Then Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king with the sword, for Hazer formerly was the head of all these kingdoms, and they struck every person who was in it with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them, There was no one left who breathed, and he burned Hazor with fire. And Joshua captured all the cities of these kings and all their kings, and he struck them with the edge of the sword and utterly destroyed them, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. However, Israel did not burn any cities that stood on their mounds except Hazor alone, which Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the cattle and the sons of Israel took as their plunder. But they struck every man with the edge of the sword, until he had destroyed them, they left no one who breathed. Just as the Lord commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded. Thus Joshua took all the land, the hill country and all the Negev and all that land of Goshen, the low land, the Arabah, and the hill country of Israel, and its low land from Mount Halak that arises towards Seir, even as far as Belgad in the valley of Lebanon at the foot of Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them down and put them to death. Joshua waged war a long time with all these kings. There was not a city which made peace with the sons of Israel except the Hivites living in Gibeon. They took them all in battle. For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts to meet Israel in battle in order that he might utterly destroy them, that they might receive no mercy, but that he might destroy them just as the Lord had commanded Moses. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. And again, this is just one section of these types of commands by the Lord to his people to put everything and everyone to the edge of the sword. No survivors. No survivors. We see this again and again. And, and we might think, or we might hear things like, well, that's, that's really not fair. I mean, that's not a loving God who does that, who comes in and just kills everybody. would not he just push them out of the land and let his people have the land? Well, see, questions like that come from our own experiences. They come from our own hearts and our own value system. It's not that we can't ask those hard questions of God, but we have to be ready to receive the hard answers that God gives us as well. Because the actions that we read here are not rooted in our hearts, but are rooted in God's commands. Because the Lord said, go and do this. So his actions are rooted in perfection, and holiness, and justice, and mercy, as defined by him, not defined by us. It is a perfect definition of these things, untainted by sin. So questions like, was it right for God to order his people to kill all these people in every city, or doesn't it upset you that God orders the death of all these people just so his people can get more land? I mean, is that right? Isn't, is genocide wrong when God says to do it? Well, that's according to our standards we ask those questions. And we don't have any other standards except if lest we look at God's word and understand his character. Is it How is it right? And this is one of the questions that we have to wrestle with. How is it right for God, the God that we worship, the one true God, to order these things and his people to carry them out? But if we see other religions attempting to carry these things out we think it is abominable how is that possible how do we live with these things well the problem that many people have with these stories in in Joshua and these events is that it, it doesn't seem to fit the popular conception of the Christian God that we worship in particular the question is asked how could a loving God allow or even command this much brutality and this much death. Furthermore, it suggests that God des- the, the God described here in the Old Testament is a different God than we worship today. Because the God we worship today is loving and merciful and kind. He is not this judgmental and, and vicious God. Uh, yes, he is. He is the same. But these things are done in perfection, not according to the way that we understand them. So God may be merciful and he may be gracious concerning sin and sinners. Forgiveness is very clear there. We deserve eternal damnation, but we receive grace and mercy. So he may be that way or he may be judgmental. He may sit in judgment and condemn sinners. Remember, each of us is born tainted by sin. We deserve nothing but eternal damnation. It is the Lord who intervenes and saves us. From that eventuality. If he does not forgive sin, then he'll punish sin. He may do it sooner, he may do it later, but he will do it. So when we read God's word, it's understandable that God's command that every living being in Canaan be put to death, it it sounds sounds terrible, doesn't it? It sounds awful. Yes, yet it is there. No mercy for women, no mercy for children, no compassion on those who are aged, who could not flee. Many outside the faith have argued that this makes God immoral, that this makes God a monster. And even those inside the faith who who don't like this have to go through kind of exegetical gymnastics to kind of explain it away. But yet this is what God is like. This is the way he acts. These were the orders that he gave to Moses and to Joshua. And he expected them to be carried out. So there are at least two reasons for this. Now, let me give you the first reason. And the first reason is evidence when it came to pass when Israel did not obey. So we're going to get the evidence from the reason from what they ended up not doing. God wanted the land cleared of all temptations for his people. That's why he ordered it. That's one of the reasons. He said, go in and clear out these pagan nations because I don't want the pure religion of Of the Israelites to be corrupted in in a synergistic way that that this this pagan Canaanite religion or the the religion of sacrificing children, etc., would intermix with the true religion. We don't want that. The Canaanites were a threat to the people's attention and focus and worship of God. And Joshua, for all his faithfulness, he left this job undone. He did not do everything that the Lord commanded. It was kind of like once Israel felt kind of safe, that they had enough land, then they kind of eased up and did not destroy everybody. Maybe we can you know, keep these people for water toters or woodcutters or something like that, so they can be our slaves. So we'll keep them. We won't kill everybody. I mean, somebody's got to do our dirty work, right? The book of Judges, which we have looked at off and on for the past couple of weeks, is clear evidence of what happens with that. The people... They're like this. They cycle down. They fall away from the Lord. They cry out to the Lord because they, they begin to, to interact with the, the pagan community. They begin to become part of that community. They become oppressed. They cry out to the Lord. He delivers them. We see that again and again through the book of Judges. So those few who remained became a snare. You think, how many did they leave? I mean, the Israelites were so many. How is it possible that those few people could become a snare to the Israelites who had seen these miraculous things by the Lord? It only takes a little bit. It only takes a little bit of sin to to, to begin to corrupt. It's like a a cancer that only takes a little bit, but it goes throughout the entire body. Now we can understand the motive of God here, but we still might be horrified they actually did this and commanded this. I mean those Canaanites were people, they were not abstractions. This is not just an illustration. these are actual events that happened. Isn't it still rather cruel to kill them rather than go in and evangelize and try to try to get them onto your side? Well, the second reason that God commanded. That they all should be put to death is because they were all, every man, woman, child, sinner. The wages of sin is death. In short, God did this for the same reason he does all his things. For the good of his people and for his own glory. And it's because we are sinners and because God so often shows us grace that we lose sight of the justice of God. And the wrath of God. Remember, we, yes, we worship a loving God and a God that cares for us. But it is also a God in which in his presence no sin can stand. There can be no sin in his presence. And remember from Romans 9, there are people who are created as vessels of wrath. Their destruction glorifies God. How could God do this? Well, maybe the question is, why doesn't God immediately kill all of us? Why does he give us any grace at all? You remember the book written by the rabbi? Uh, Why do bad things happen to good people? Rabbi Gershner, okay That's a terrible book, because it comes from a bad starting place. John Gershner wrote a great book, "Why do good things happen to Bad People?" See, that's the book that's real. Why? Because we're bad people? Why should anything good happen to us? Because God is gracious to us. What do we deserve? Destruction? What does he give us? Mercy, mercy. Well, the shocking part of the story of the conquest of the Canaan is not necessarily that he orders the destruction of all these people, but that he extends his mercy to anyone. It happens to be his chosen people. But that's the shocking thing, because everybody deserves it, his wrath. Some receive his grace. So was it right for God to order the slaughter of women and children and men and everybody? Well. Let's look at it theologically. God is the author of life. He gives life, he takes life. Everybody dies. Everybody's days are counted. Remember, Psalms are very clear. Even the days before, even before I was formed, my days were numbered by the Lord. You have an ending date of this life. The Lord has determined that. He may use his direct action, he may use a secondary, a tertiary cause. It might be natural causes that end our days. But however it is, God has determined that. Okay, God has determined that. I may not like the process of my death, but God does me no wrong in my death. It is God's providential hand. Remember, we are all sinners. Remember what we deserve. But the reality that we even breathe, we take our next breath, is God's grace and his care in our lives. And, and the Old and New Testament presents God as the one who has total rights over all that I am. Total rights. If he chooses to use me in this way, that is his business. He created me. He formed me. If he wants me to do this, then that's his business. If he wants me over here, that is his business. Remember what Job said? The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's not an easy thing to say. I don't want you to think that this is an academic exercise as we look at this. These are hard things that we have to wrestle with and come to grips with and say, is this the God that I worship? So the question we're dealing with is not just the direct actions of God, but God ordering men to go and destroy other men. Uh, remember, in, in the flood, the waters came, just wiped out everybody. Noah was safe. Okay? That, they've been showing that terrible movie Noah on TV. It's just, oh, it just so, bad. Okay? <laughs> so bad. Theologically, it's so bad. Okay, uh, I, I'm not an art critic, but I'm a theological critic, so that was bad theology there. But... The waters come and destroy everybody except those on the ark. Well, that's the Lord acting, and we see he does this in different places. But here with Joshua, he says, Joshua, take your army, go kill everybody. Remember, the average sword was about this long at that time. You had to be close to people to kill them. It's not like you had a sniper rifle from 500 yards. You had to be up close. You had to smell them. You had to see them. This was not nice work. We commanded Joshua to slaughter the people. So we have to ask, is, is that a right? Morally, is that right? Is that right? He says, don't leave anybody alive. Don't leave a donkey. Don't leave a child. Don't leave a woman. Don't leave a child. Don't leave anybody alive. And he says, in Jericho, wipe out everybody. So let me make, make this portion of it clear. This is not the way, the normal way the people of God are called to act. This was a season in history. A season in history when God said to do this. Okay? This God is the immediate king of Israel. It's different than He is the way He's king over the church today. The church is not Israel in the Old Testament in that time. He is it is not a theocracy. We are not our own political entity. Therefore, the word from the Lord today is to do what to our enemies? Love our enemies, show them compassion, pray for those. To abuse you. Don't kill in order to spread the gospel. Be willing to die for the spread of the gospel. Okay, it's a little bit different now. This was a season in history in the Old Testament. We understand that God in the Old Testament often used people's own sin to, to uh, get the fullness of sin in them. Remember it says in Genesis, the Amorites, I'm going to let the Amorites simmer, I'm paraphrasing, I'm going to let the Amorites simmer for 400 years until their sin comes to the full and then they'll be destroyed. In Deuteronomy, it says, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord destroys them. That's chapter 9, chapter 18 in Deuteronomy. Because of these detestable practices, the Lord will drive them out before you. So, But but weren't there any, any innocent people in these nations? Weren't there any? That, that were killed just because everybody else was? And the answer would be those who were left were not innocent, were worthy of being destroyed. Now, what about the Canaanite culture? We say, oh, Rand, this. Were they really that bad? Yes, they were really that bad. If we do our history and look into what the Canaanite culture and, and really remember, I, I'm going to edit these comments for you so that they're palatable in public. The Canaanites were so bad, and they did such detestable things that I cannot share with you. You have to go and read them yourself, okay? I don't want anybody walking out going, oh, man, can you believe what he said? It's just what the Canaanites were like. The Canaanite sinfulness was exhibited specifically in these areas, idolatry, incest, idolatry, child sacrifice, homosexuality, and bestiality. The Old Testament says anybody who practices those things should be killed, straight off. So they deserved death because they did not repent. They did not repent. So let's look at these cultures that it comes from that the Lord said to destroy. Now, it's important that we look at these, and it's important that we look carefully at them. But I want to warn you, this could be very painful Why will it be painful? Because many of the activities that the Canaanites did are practiced in our society today. They are practiced in our society today in the daily lives of citizens of this country whether it is through technology and the click of a mouse that they can access these things, whether it is for convenience in their own lives that they practice these things, whether it is for entertainment that these things go on, or whether they believe it is my freedom to exercise this, these things go on in today's world. Idolatry, first. Idolatry perverts our ability to love God and love what God loves. So consequently we love what he hates and we hates what he, we hate what he loves that's what idolatry does so it was when they gathered to worship their pagan gods these types of things went on they would they would get up and they would dance and they would writhe and undulate in, in these dances and they would discard their clothes and the people would cheer during these times of worship and they just this was great nothing was out of bounds in worship of baal okay nothing was out of bounds and they viewed if their god did it then we could do it as well. So they personalized Baal and they had him um, having relations with his mother, Asherah, his sister, Anat, and his daughter, Pedre. And none of this is depicted as bad. Hey, if Baal did it, we can do it too. So that's what the Canaanites did in their day to day lives. There were no penalties in the Canaanite culture for this kind of activity, it was encouraged. It was encouraged. In the ancient Near East, it was cursed in a lot of those pagan cultures. In fact, in Egypt, if you had a dream that involved incest, that was considered to be a good omen. A good omen. The Canaanite religion, like all the pagan religions, was a fertility religion. So worship often involved the temple prostitutes. Canaanites worshipped a goddess called the Queen of Heaven, And quote, relations with a person whose whole life was devoted to the goddess was tantamount to union with the goddess herself. So the more relations you could have with the temple prostitute, the more the goddess smiled upon you, the more blessed you would be, the more society looked upon you as being blessed. So the more pagan you were, the more validated you were by society. The further you are away from morality that what we would define as, the more society thought you were good. That is how far society had turned in the Canaanite world. Moloch was a Canaanite god, the underworld deity, represented by a bull on a human form, and whose arms were out like this. They would light the fire within the belly of the bull. You would put your child on the arms and sacrifice your firstborn to be burned to death and not only were the victims very young infants they were often toddlers or even as young as 4 years old would be placed there to be sacrificed that was the norm of society that they would find success and blessing by destroying their children homosexuality bestiality pedophilia these were not just common practices they were encouraged practices in the Canaanite world these are just the tip of the iceberg Just the tip of the iceberg of the things that went on. So when it comes to the depravity of the people surrounding the Israelites, you can see, uh, you know, it doesn't take much of that sin to influence the people. The Canaanite culture had reached the point that we so often find in Scripture. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Ooh. Maybe today we might redefine it. Each man defined right in his own mind and would not tolerate anyone else challenging his morality. If I can define my own morality, then it is mine, and it is right, and it is wrong of you to challenge it in any fashion. seems we have entire industries, political groups, focused on the same things today, to enable people to choose their own morality and live in it, making sure we can sacrifice our children and not feel guilty about it. Okay? Even having leaders celebrate, hey, another hundred years of Planned Parenthood, great. Another hundred years that we can do this. We see an entertainment industry that goes to great lengths to tell us that men singing about the abuse, the abuse, and degradation of women is art. It's good, it's art. If you ever watch the female performers on stage or see them at the award show, it seems like a, a race to where. The smallest amount, and still go out in public, okay who can do that? who can do that? and they say that it is good, it is good. We have entire segments of society tell us that that the morals and norms that have shaped us for generations are suddenly wrong, they are oppressive, they are damaging to the psyches of countless young men and women, so much so that they need their own safe places to go to, where they won 't hear any views that. Con- are contrary to their own views. Each man did what was right in his own eyes. This explains why, in certain cities, God sentenced to death every breathing thing. Understand, the worship of Canaanite gods had so corrupted every man, woman, child, and animal that they were all destroyed. Now remember, Israel was warned not to let and he survived because if, if they don't completely destroy them, the Israelites will take on these pagan practices. And that's exactly what happened. And Israel began the slide down. God warned them again and again, 722, the northern kingdom was destroyed, 586, the southern kingdom was destroyed. Why? Because they put into practice these types of things in worship. They turned away from worship of the one true God and became... T- came to worship the Baals and Molochs and even sacrificed their own children. The Canaanites were guilty of depravity. They were guilty of violence. The Canaanites heard the miraculous approach. If you're still in Joshua, turn back to chapter 2 of Joshua. Now, there were some, some, very small amount, who knew what was going on. Chapter 2, verse 8. You'll know this as soon as we start, who this is. This is Rahab. Verse 8 of chapter 2. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, the Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. Word has reached us and Rahab says, I know it's your God. And your God is way more powerful than anything we worship. And and I'm going with you guys, paraphrasing scripture there. Those who were sensitive to the Lord's warning had the opportunity to follow the Israelites, or to flee. Those who remained were guilty and were destroyed. Another example of this would be the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham comes and says, Lord, really? You're going to destroy those cities? Really? What if I can find 50 righteous men? And the Lord said, great. And Abraham says, what if I can find 40 righteous Sure, sure, 30, 10. If I can find 10 righteous men in the city, will you spare it? And the Lord said, Sure. And Abraham finds how many righteous men in the city? And find ten. The angel comes to Lot says, Lot, I'm going to get you out of here. And what do the men of the city want? They want the angels. Send them out. Send them out to us. You all know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and the angels blind the men and they wander around and literally says they wore themselves out groping for the door of Lot's house, trying to get there. They can't see, but they still want to get into Lot's house to get these visitors in the morning, Lot can find no one willing to leave. No one wants to leave. In fact, God has to get Lot out of the city because his heart is still there. He just doesn't want to leave. He had been so, you know, you're around things for so long, and that you've become used to them. And Lot had become so used to sin that that he didn't want to leave it. The angels had to get him by the hand and take him out. And his wife not just look back, but it's look back with longing. She looked back with longing, and that was the end of her. We see a similar account in the first chapters of Jeremiah. The Lord says, I'm going to destroy Jerusalem. And Jeremiah says, well, well, really, Lord, you want to do that? And God says, okay, go up and down the streets. See if you can find one person who deals honestly and seeks the truth, and I will forgive the city. Chapter 5 of Jeremiah. Jeremiah goes, and he says... I can't find any. I could not find one person in Jerusalem who seeks the truth and will deal honestly with me. He says, Then get out, because I'm going to destroy the city. We, we have no reason to believe there was even one innocent person left in the Canaanite region by the time the Israelites got there. Was it right for the Lord? to order the destruction of entire people groups. Yes, to protect his chosen people from corruption. Did it work? No. Why? Because they didn't obey the Lord. Does God command his church today to do anything like that? No. We are not a theocracy, but we live in a depraved society. We we, we may not be surrounded by people who do the exact same things as the Canaanites and the Baal worshipers, but... We have plenty of depravity in our own culture. It's a mouse click away. We have institutionalized and legalized the, normal, the, the normalization of the death of, of children in this society. Anyone who challenges those morals, they're run over. They're ostracized. They're put out. But God calls us to stand and not be synergistic with the world. Yes, we have to be in the world. This is, this is the place where the Lord has put us. But we cannot be co- corrupt by the blatant sin of what goes on in the world. We cannot go, well, that's okay. That's no, no problem. I mean, we don't do it, but I'm, I'm not going to make us think about it. Yeah, this, this, it's sin. The Lord will judge sin. He will do it sooner or he will do it later. He has given us grace and mercy so that we might be a light into this world. To take the gospel and to stand against what is evil and to stand for what is right. So the question is, uh, how, how are we going to live? How will we do it in our own lives, in our own circles? How will the church stand against the evil of society? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we read these passages and, and our hearts just they kind of ache because we see such destruction. We see what appears to be genocide ordered by you, carried out by your people, but it was for a specific season and a specific purpose. Now we look at the world around us who, who, that is practicing these same things and we are not called to go and destroy them We are called to take the gospel into them. The sword that we carry is the word of God. That cuts deeper than anything else. That is more powerful, for it is the power of God unto salvation. That is what changes society. That is what changes an individual heart. Heavenly Father, help us to see today who it is that you call us to take this sword to, the gospel. Who do we take the gospel to in our lives? Who is it that needs to hear it? Who is it that needs to see it more clearly in our lives? Who is it that is practicing evil that we need to influence? Because you've put them within the sphere of our influence, and and, and we can talk to them. We can perhaps be used as your instrument to change their heart. Heavenly Father, your grace is 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 more than we can ever dream or imagine, and you have given it to the likes of us to use for your purposes to change the world. Send us out that we might do these things, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.